Ludovica was created and her, um, she had all of the different weapons from all of the gods and she came to Earth and the reason she exists um, was for the liberation of the oppressed. And so that's the story of Durga. And when I was young, my mom told me, I said, Mom, I love Durga. She's my favorite goddess. I love her. She's, she speaks to me. And that was before I really understood all of those things about liberation and oppression. I didn't really know about those things. Like, like I said, I, you know, um, I was in, I was saying things like reverse racism. So like, I'm not, when I was a little child, I didn't have that depth of knowledge and nobody was teaching it to me, right? I went to a white school in America. Yeah. I was definitely not learning about oppression. Um, and um, my mom said to me, of course she speaks to you. Because when I was pregnant with you, I had a dream. And that was that Goddess Durga brought you to me. And that's why you are named Shraddha. mean devotion. And then your life would be devoted to Goddess Durga. My life's purpose is for the liberation of the oppressed. Whatever that means. Whatever that looks like. However I do that. Um, that's why I stay in this. Because that's my life's purpose. That's why I'm here. The voice you'll hear on today's episode is an effervescent, insightful, and dynamic voice for education, that of Shraddha Shirude, an ethnic math studies educator in the Seattle area. Early in her teaching career, Shraddha saw the need to change the game and created a unique math elective that adds the diverse perspectives of students in the math curriculum. I titled this episode, Devoted because of Shada's ability to connect through storytelling while elevating the deep passion she has for achieving racial equity. In addition to teaching, Shada serves as a coach for Seattle Education Association Center for Racial Equity and the secretary for Washington State's Ethnic Studies Program. Join us for a deep, introspective journey into Shada's purpose and the impact she makes. In the next episode of We See You Teacher, Devoted, featuring Shada Shirude. Welcome to the We See You Teacher podcast. I'm honored to have with me today um, none other than Shrada Shirude. So I'm honored to have with me today an educator I connected with on, on Twitter who um, who's based in Seattle and just immediately drawn to her story. Uh, when I began to read about her journey um, of of self that she's embarking upon and the work that she's doing to really dismantle systems of oppression in her local context and transposing that nationally. Um, and I, uh, you know, she reached out, I, re I reached out to her and, and of course, um, you know, her passion reached me all the way across the country in, in Florida here. So um, today I'm just so pleased to have um, Shraddha with me, ethnic studies educator in the Seattle area, someone who is passionate about realizing um, racial equity in our schools and doing incredible work that we're going to hear about today. So Shraddha, thank you so much uh, for being here today. Thank you for having me. Wow, I'm, I'm still not used to being introduced that way. <laughs> <laughs> With everybody Absolutely. talking about the things about me, I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. You deserve it. You deserve it. So um, uh, so pinned on your Twitter page is this um, phonetic spelling of your name and uh, and its meaning, which, it, which, which matches you, a beautiful name for a beautiful person, a beautiful spirit. And um, I wanted you to introduce yourself by, you know, naming your positionality, why your name is so important to your culture, your heritage. And right now, in her current iteration, um, who is Shraddha Shirude? Um, okay, so my name is Shraddha Shirude. Um, and the way that I would introduce myself is I am um, an Indian American immigrant. Um, and I am a teacher, um, a racial justice advocate and activist, um, and new to my identity is also acknowledging that I am disabled. Um, and that's something that I have actually lived with my whole life, um, but culturally um, was hiding from um, for, you know, not just... Um, uh, American culture reasons, but also my Indian culture reasons. Um, 
And so uh, I've been working on owning that part of my identity um, as a disabled person. Um, and it's been really interesting, um, I guess, kind of um, learning about the idea that, um, you know, as an ethnic studies teacher, um, I often um, work with my students um, on understanding their identities and how those play into the ways they learn math, the ways they navigate the world, the ways in which they are um, encouraged or invited or uninvited to learn, experience, or um, notice things. Um, and so it's been, um, I'll say, due to my students that I think I've allowed myself to acknowledge all the parts of my identity um, because of the communication with them and the interactions and the ways they, they themselves um, own who they are um, unapologetically. That's, uh, that's teenagers. They're never going to apologize for who they are. And it's something I wish that uh, society did not teach us to do. We should never apologize for who we are and the ways we show up. And that's something we can learn from teenagers that I definitely have this year. Wow, that is so powerful. Being unapologetically yourself. Um, how how do you how do you gain the courage to be unapologetically yourself? Where does that you know, come from? For me, um, honestly, and I know it sounds cheesy, but it's definitely come um, from studying ethnic studies. Um, it's come from um, working with youth and children, mm-hmm. um, and therapy. (laughs) I don't know how much to say to people. You need people that you can actually um, talk to about who you are and who you are not and who you want to be and who you have been um, and have a space where you can be okay to um, say like, you know, I made this mistake and it's feeling like this for me and like actually processing those things. Um, and it's awesome that people have friends to do that too, but our friends are not experts in processing. And so, you know, having that space, I think is just so important, um, in whatever ways it is for some people, it might be a person, some people, it might be a book. Um, some people, it might be a journal, um, but actually allowing us to have that time just for us where people don't offer their opinions. Yeah. Yeah. That's so powerful because, um, I think, at times I've, I've heard a lot that, you know, when uh, people often are listening for a response, you know, they, yeah. because they want to um, respond to someone and it's the lens, you know, through which we judge people um, depending on what they're dealing with, um, depending on um, what they're facing. And um, me being a person of faith, I know that, you know, um, everybody's struggling with something different, you know, and, um, and I think, so many times um, as, as human beings, we don't give each other enough grace, you know? Um, and I think that uh, we're here in society, we're here in this world. Um, I always just say, why don't we just take care of each other, you know? <laughs> and it's, for me, that seems like such an easy concept, but it's so difficult for a lot of people, <laughs> And I mean, it starts so young, right? It's, um, it's in our, um, I'm trying to remember exactly what the question was, but somebody had posted, um, one of my friends, uh, teacher friends, um, and they were talking about how people, um, don't like to reflect on things. Um, and, uh, they lead professional development. And one of the things that people, um, always, get frustrated about and they're like when are we going to do the real work like when are we going to actually get to doing stuff and um so much of the professional development that they do which is really amazing work um it's um through washington ethnic studies now um which is um uh, an org that i kind of helped um support lift up and i'm on the um board for um and a lot of that um fresh development is about changing perspectives Um, kind of unpacking your beliefs and understanding yourself and doing a lot of self-reflective work. And once you spend time doing that, then you get to like the doing of the racial justice work. And people are just like, why are are everybody so stuck on the thinking? It's like, nobody's stuck on the thinking. Y'all don't know how to do it. 
Yeah. yeah. That's why you're frustrated. You know, when you like have your students do things in the class and they're like, why don't we have to talk about this? Can you just tell me how to do things? Like, no, that's not learning. You have to actually think about it. And we teach that to our students early, right? Like when, if you think about, um, you know, back when you were in school or even as, even now for me as a teacher has been a thing that I've had to um, kind of unpack and really drive home with my students this year um, Mm -hmm. has been, if a student is falling behind and they're trying to catch up on assignments, what assignments do we ask them to do? Or if they have an IEP and we're modifying things for them, what assignments do we get rid of? Right. Or say they're not important or that they can be shortened. Almost always it's the reflective pieces, right? It's like, don't worry about the reflection part. Just make sure you take the test. Don't worry about the reflection part. Just make sure you turn in your essay. Right. We tell them that they can skip the reflective work. We say, don't worry about submitting that second draft. Just submit something. And the thing that is important is the action and not the reflection. But that's where we got where we are. That's why so many racial justice movements, too, have ended up with us having these issues. Right? Like, one of the things that's been a big topic of conversation amongst some of my um, educators of color has been, um, educator of color circles, um, has been the ramifications, I don't know if that's the right word, um, but of Brown versus Board for yeah. our um, our Black educators and yeah. our Black students, right? Um, and that is that there is this beautiful community of learning that was happening when things were segregated. And the point was is that the, the goal was to change the system and make sure that the fundings were fixed. Things weren't right. Things were not equal. The, like that part is so important that Brown versus Board of Education happened. But the part that was forgotten and centered in the, it was all about action. They forgot about the reflective side of that um, legislation, right? Nobody thought, okay, now that this has happened, we have to reflect on how we teach in our white schools. Yeah. They just left that whole part out. They're like, well, aren't you glad that now black kids can come to our school? They completely forgot about all of the other things that were going on. And just said, like, now you all must become us because reflection was ignored. And that's on the people, like, that, that's on the white schools, right? That's on the white school boards. That's on the, um, the white legislators who voted for these things. There was no intention of reflecting and trying to do right by the, by the students and by the learning. It was all about how does it look? And we see that same thing today, right, about checking boxes. Yeah. Well, we did the racial equity training. We have a racial equity team. We say we're doing the work. Yeah. We did culturally responsive teaching. We did this. We did this. We did that. Everybody's changed now. It was, it was just a magic bullet. When yeah. The real work is, is it's recursive. It's, it's um, continual. It's, um, and like you said, it's reflective. And I think that's why um, re- reflection is so hard to do because um, you have to actually look within. And a lot mm-hmm. of these changes that we're talking about that have to be done, as you've mentioned, require a look within, you know, because it's easy for us to say it's their fault or um, it's not me. It was my four parents. It's uh, and we we uh, we get we get trapped that way um, in that way of thinking. And um, I wanted to uh, just. You know, in this conversation, um, talking about the We See You Teacher platform and and uh, some that that I've uh, create um, in the field in general, you read about um, you know this perceived brain drain that's going on in education mm-hmm. in terms of uh, uh, people who have are multifaceted in an intelligence um, and uh, would make phenomenal teachers. Um, it, you know, they they stray away from becoming an educator and. Mm-hmm. Uh, pursue other fields for a a variety of different reasons, be it prestige, be it money, be it influence, you know, and uh, other factors. And they ultimately go elsewhere. Uh, Why did, why did you choose uh, the field of education? Um, That's a fun story. Um, I actually, so my grandfather, um, he um, was a teacher. Um, Actually he was a math teacher in India Mm-hmm. Um, and when we were in second grade, or I guess not we, I was in second grade, yeah. um, my grandparents came to visit us here in America again. Um, and, um, 
something that he loved to do um, and did since, according to my mother, since she could remember, was the crossword puzzles in the paper every single morning. Like that was my grandpa's thing. Um, and I noticed it when I was a kid in, you know, in his retirement, right? Because he's not going to work anymore. Every morning, get up, grab the paper, and just he would not leave his chair until he saw the crossword puzzle in the newspaper every single day. Um, then he came to America and like my grandfather spoke English um, and he knew how to read and write and everything. But crossword puzzles also uh, linguistically are difficult, right? Because they include slang, they include um, pop culture. Like it includes things that you wouldn't know necessarily if you're not um, part of the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, you know, I remember him kind of like struggling with them and being like, what is this word? And like, I could maybe come up with it or like my mom would be able to help right like he didn't know because he didn't necessarily have all of the cultural uh words right like even you know the difference between labor and labor is different in spelling so a crossword puzzle that makes a big difference Mm -hmm. um and so um i in second grade taught him how to do a sudoku puzzle because no matter where you are in the world the letters the symbols for numbers are different but you know, digits are all the same. There's 10 digits. That's we count in, in on earth. We count in general in a base 10 system. Uh Um, And so I taught him how to do that. And like, he was so excited about it. And it was just, it was, I guess this new favorite thing. He's a math teacher too. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then literally until I think the day before he passed away, he would do the Sudoku puzzle every single day in addition to his crossword puzzle and he ended up liking the Sudoku puzzles um even more and I actually have his old um I have his un- incompleted Sudoku puzzle book um with mm. me now oh, um, yeah and um you know it's for me it was if I as an eight-year-old had this much of an impact um on my grandpa's life and gave him a space to feel intelligent and um you know in a country where he felt for a moment that maybe he wasn't mm-hmm. because of that language, yeah. then can I have that impact even more? And that's kind of a moment. Um, and um, that was kind of like a big crossroads for me of like, that's cool. I can do that. I was also eight. Um, yeah. So it wasn't yeah. like that enlightening in the moment, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but um, so when it was, you think back, that's what you think about. Yeah, exactly. You know, like it's in the in the moment, I was just like, "Yeah, I'm so cool. I can teach people things." Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so that's that was kind of a a, um, a bridge um, of like maybe this teaching thing is pretty cool. Such a fond memory, and um, yeah. and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, you know that you know the the way that may have impacted your work. You know, in terms of you being an ethnic. Um, you know, math and ethnic math, math studies. Um, you know, uh, you you've made such a um, phenomenal impact. You know, in such a short amount of time. You know, with the work that you do within your school and um, the, in building this um, ethnic math studies course, which is, um, you know, built on the foundation of centralizing the narrative of mm-hmm. what, what I believe is innate in in the blood of um, children of color you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, black indigenous and, um, people of color, um, I feel are innately scientifically and mathematically driven. Um, um, so in reading your story, I know you have this foundational belief that, you know, that, that everyone is a, is a mathematician, you know, and the oppression of, of, of black indigenous people of color, I believe, you know, that stems from the white supremacist ideals of exceptionalism, um, meaning that, you know, I can't empower you to to show up and be your best self. Um, so even with that, you know, ethnic math studies um, is helping people to come to grips with how powerful their culture is, you know, mm-hmm. how powerful their identity is as um a black indigenous person of color. So how do you persevere um, in creating these opportunities um, for children of color in, in the face of whiteness? I mean, I have two responses to that. And the very first, and I think the most important one is community Um, because whiteness, you know, as we know, loves to silo. It's the, it's the 
it is how you do it, right? Divide and conquer, infighting, all of those things, right? Like model minority myth. Everything is about divide and conquer mm -hmm. because when somebody is um, when somebody is isolated or alone, they're more likely to be manipulated or targeted um, or what have you. So mm -hmm. um, that's kind of my biggest thing is is being able to stay in community um, at Washington Ethnic Studies. Now I have a beautiful group of friends, uh, colleagues. Um, and I really like they are my rock um, and the people that I turn to for support. Um, and as silly as it sounds, also Twitter, like that's I found so many wonderful um, colleagues who are doing the same work all across the country, um, internationally as well, like people who are trying to dismantle white supremacy because white supremacy is not an American problem. White supremacy mm -hmm. is an international problem. And there's advocates That's all over the world who are working to dismantle um, the settler colonialism in their in their spaces, and it's hard and it's lonely um, because it's become the norm. And so when you push against the norm, it's painful. Um, and so having those you know those spaces um, where I feel like I can. Um, seek out support has been so critical. Um, and it's also been the spaces where I, I get, I feel like I get permission to rest. Yeah. Yeah. We need you to keep doing this work. So, you know, I just want to encourage you and empower you that, you know, I, I know you're going to hear um, opposition, but every time you um, uh, sense that opposition, you know, I invite you to push harder, you know, because you know, you're doing something right. Um, because I just read about the impact that you've been able to have. And, um, and I, I, I just, like I said, I, I just, um, become inspired, um, by you. Um, and I just, you know, this is your, how long have you been in the field of education? This is your what? Um, as a classroom teacher, this would only be my third year. Yeah. Yeah. So immediately when you came in, you felt the need to, you know, start, um, I guess what, what sparked that? Um, honestly, I, so my first year teaching, I taught two classes. I taught regular geometry and then I taught honors pre-calc. Um, and like the stark differences were gross. Can you guess which class looked like what? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I taught mostly 10th graders across the board. Um, I didn't really teach anything other than 10th grade, but mm -hmm. I taught a senior level class and I taught 10th grade class. Um, I should have had 10th graders across the board, right? I had a white class and mm -hmm. I also noticed the difference in their attitudes about class at the beginning, right? Of walking into class, kids were excited if they were in pre-calc. They're like, yeah, math, like, cool. Um, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm good at this. Or even if it wasn't, I'm good at this and I like it. It was like, yo, I know I need to be here and I'm going to learn this because it's going to get me somewhere that I want to be. Yeah. Versus my other class was very much walking in like, here we go again. And then just very, you know, kind of burden. Defeatist, this defeatist yes. attitude they came in with. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't mean it that I don't mean it to say that like, white yeah. students are better students or black students are worse students. Oh, and I also, you know, and I, I want to clarify that I had black students yeah. in that class and I had white students mm -hmm. in the other classes too. Like it sure. wasn't that it was majorities. Mm -hmm. um, and I have, um, oh, and I didn't just have black and white students. Um, mm -hmm. um, but it was, the energy was really different. Um, and I realized that, um, that was, that was on systems who yeah. created these, energies right they're not attitudes because attitude is a personal choice um and energy is really what people around you are giving off and you feed into right energy is changing and moving and you can you can go into um a math class next door and have a have a different energy than you have in this math class right like energy is about the people and this the space um, and attitude is really personal. And so I didn't ever really feel like my students had negative attitudes about math. I felt like they had really negative energies when they entered into math class because of the stigmas that they held with it. 
and not connected to math, but connected to their experiences with systems and with teachers. Um, and it pissed me off. Yeah. I, I asked the kids, I was like, what is your problem? And they're like, you're our problem. And I was like, you don't even know me. Yeah. <laughs> Today, and you hate me already? And they're like, yeah, you teach math. We don't like you. Mm. And then I had some other kids who were like, you teach math? Mm. Because they were shocked because the energy that I had was not of, you're going to take a test, you're going to do what I tell you and what I know is best. And that's not the energy that I had coming. I came in and like, hey, so what do you guys want to learn? They're like, this is geometry. So we're going to learn about like shapes and stuff, right? And I was like, I guess so. Uh, it was my first year. I didn't know what the hell yeah. I was doing. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I asked them. I was like, what is school supposed to look like now? It's been a minute mm-hmm. since I've been here. Mm-hmm. And like, I think some of the kids tried, like they either thought I was joking or like they were trying to play me. Mm-hmm. I'm like, when the kids said like, yo, we don't take tests in geometry. I was like, okay, what should we do instead? And they were like, what? What? Mm. And like, they were surprised. Um, And I, and I mentioned genuinely because I was like, yeah, I hated taking tests. I also was pissed when I got the job. Mm -hmm. They don't tell you what classes you're going to teach when you Mm. get there. Mm -hmm. And then what classes am I going to have? I finally got out and they were like pre-calculus and geometry. I was like, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. Those Mm -hmm. classes. You're yeah. going to make me teach two classes that I like did horribly at. Are you uh-huh. Uh-huh. I really want to teach algebra yeah. um, and I have yet to teach algebra, but mm-hmm. also I love teaching geometry now and it's become one of my favorite subjects and I hated it in high school. Yeah. Um, and it was because I was um, tested on my ability to visually understand things. That I didn't, it wasn't that my skill. Um, and so I've really changed how I teach um, teach those courses a lot. Um, I ended up with, um, just geometry last year. And like this year, I, um, I, I should say I attempted, um, I mm-hmm. attempted to not give any exams. Um, but I got spent, um, online learning and like could not make it happen because I was completely falling apart. And so I was using my colleagues supports to, to kind of navigate that space. Mm-hmm. But, um, genuinely like I did not prioritize exams. My, my tests were worth the same amount as my assignments. Yeah. Um, and I only gave two tests, I think this year and the rest were projects. Cause I was like, this is not a good use of the time. And like those students were so worried about tests. And I was like, you can just retake it. And they're like, you just could give us new problems. Like, no, you can literally just keep taking the test until you're happy with your grade and you understand it. And you can explain to me why you got the answers that you did. And it changes the energy in the room. And suddenly it's about the kids wanting to learn because they want to know and not because they have to know. And that was kind of the space that I felt in that honors class. Mm. I felt like those kids wanted to learn. And when they didn't want to learn, they just chose not to. And that was okay in that space, but it wasn't okay in the spaces with my black and brown students. And I didn't understand why. And it pissed me off. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of what started this journey of like, why are, why is it okay for my students who are white um, or who had the opportunities maybe for financial or cultural wealth reasons to be able to accelerate and say, I only want to take uh, this math class and this math class and this math class. And my other, my other students um, who are told, you will take this math class and this one and this one and this one. And they have no choice in what mm-hmm. to learn. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And they, like, it's, it's really obvious why, yeah. right? And it comes back to that Brown versus Board of Education. Mm-hmm. Set. It comes back to no child left behind. It's yes. white saviorism. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and, and I want to get a little bit into you know, race and justice and equity. Um, and, uh, recently I was listening to, uh, a podcast that's, um, it, it's called All the Smoke. It's with, um, Matt Barnes, Stephen Jackson. It's a, um, sports podcast, but mm-hmm. on there they had Jem- Jeremy Lin and he's a, he's a Chinese pro basketball player and he was playing in the G League. Uh, and one of the, one of the other players on the opposing team because of his Chinese heritage called him coronavirus. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, he said on the podcast that that kind of sparked something in him because 
with the rise in like the Asian hate um, that was happening and going on, um, he said he honestly felt differently than when during the summer, um, a lot of people of um, color, specifically African-Americans, you know, were protesting about, you know, how they felt, you know, so he was really being honest about, you know, his identity as an Asian-American um, mm-hmm. felt, he, he felt, he felt a little different, you know, when it was happening to people of his own kind, um, Asian yeah. people. Yeah. Um, so I was, I, I wanted to ask you, um, as an Indian American, um, from what lens, um, have you, from what lens do you view racism, you know, against, against you, um, as an Indian American? And then as a member of the, the BIPOC community? You know, um, it's been a very interesting journey um, for me. I have a lot, um, I have a lot of privileges. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I can acknowledge that, right? Like I'm, I'm a very light-skinned Indian person. Um, I also um, have uh, the, what do, you, what do they call it? Pretty privilege. So people don't, you know, see me as ugly. Um, and I also have the skinny privilege um, and all of those different um, like privileges that kind of uh, mask my identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I am often not seen as Indian because I look racially ambiguous. So I've been asked if I'm mixed. I'm asking if I'm Native American. I'm asked if I'm um, Latinx, like all different kinds of things. People like, um, you know, when I was younger and uh, didn't have the words for it, um, I had some like, I had some people be like, oh, what a fun game. Let me try to guess what you are. Um, oh, my God. And so that was just kind of a weird. Um, that, that was a weird racism that I didn't know was racism. I thought it was like, I was like, oh, that's flattering, I guess. You know, they they want to know who I am. Um, mm-hmm. And but then it also it became as I started to notice it. um this is why I think sometimes it's um, hard for me to um, pinpoint identity, my personal identity, because I'm not seen for all of my aspects of my identity, right? My disability is hidden. People don't know I'm an immigrant because I don't have an accent. Um, people can't tell what race I am, so they don't know what ways to aggress me. Mm. Um, and so it's a really weird uh, space to be in. Um, and people also don't know how old I am, so they can't decide if they should discriminate against me or not. Right. Um, and so the ambiguity of my existence allows for, um, minimal microaggressions, um, or sorry, minimal macroaggressions. And just, I am impounded with microaggressions all day long. Um, things like, uh, you know, somebody saying, what are you? Oh, it's so cool. You must be this. And then providing an explanation for why. Um, one time I was struggling in, um, in uh, calc class in college and somebody was like, what are you? I was like, what do you think I am? Like, why does this matter? And they're like, you must be Latinx. Cause you know, you're what to say. You must be Mexican because you're not good at math. I was like, what the fuck does that mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Um, oh my yeah. God. And then, so then when I said I was Indian, they're like, you can't be Indian. Indian people are good at math. And so I get a lot of weird microaggressions. And then I also one time was told, um, again, it's like supposed to be like they're backhanded compliments, right? Like they're supposed to be flatteries. Um, I was told when um, I met, um, met somebody um, in person that I hadn't uh, met in person at all because we've been in Zoom all year. And then we went back to the school building and this person was like, whoa. I was like, what? Like, well, you, you were nothing like I expected. I was like, what do you mean? They're like, you're like a small Asian person. I just, I expected you to be this kind of like tall, big, like loud kind of, you know, advocate like you seem online. And I was like, I don't know how to respond to that. Cause I think that was supposed to be a compliment. But then again, you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's kind of been um, a lot of the um, professional spaces, um, those types of microaggressions that I felt with racism. I'm also a woman of color in math. It's a whole new level of microaggressions. Um, and, you know, um, in the personal world um, or in the stranger world, just because of the way that I am small, um, Asian and attractive, I'm just fetishized a lot. And that's a different level of racism um, Absolutely. that I think happens because they can't tell I'm Indian. 
Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like you have to, um, do you feel like you have to name your color or your culture or your identity? Or do you sort of, um, let people just think what they think? Do you find yourself correcting people a lot or how do you deal with it? Um, I think in spaces that I feel like my identity is important, I identify myself before I speak. Mm-hmm. You know, I tell people so that they're not, um, they're not miss, uh, I don't know, I don't know what that word is, but they're not like making up my identity in their own heads. They're not mm-hmm. creating narratives about me. I tell them what the narrative is um, because positionality is important. Absolutely. Um, and in other spaces when, you know, there's a random man on the street, um, howling at me, calling me a Latina and I'm engage with him. He can think of me however he wants to. And it's not safe for me to be like, by the way, you're a racist, but mm-hmm. I wish it were. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but yeah. I still wouldn't correct him. Even if I had the um, safety to tell him he was a racist, because when people are oftentimes, in my opinion, when people are, um, making, um, making up stories about me and creating their own narratives for who I am. Yeah. They don't, they don't need to know who I am because Mm -hmm. they don't have, they haven't earned the right to know anything about my identity. Mm. That's a strong statement. I, I, I just love that. And, um, you know, uh, because when we're talking about, cause I do a lot of work on, you know, restoring humanity, you know, within children of color in schools, because I often think that, well, know that students are often stripped of their humanity very early, you know, even being suspended in preschool at times, you know, so the work that you're doing, it becomes complex. And at times, as you described, you know, really debilitating, you know, um, I was reading the article um, that is featuring that featured you in the South um, Seattle Emerald article. Mm-hmm. And in it, it talks about where you mentioned, you know, white supremacist um, cultures, you know, and, and we talked a little bit about it, you know, the toxicity that, you know, contributes to keeping systems, you know, operating just how they're designed to operate. So mm-hmm. we we talk about that a lot. You know, the systems just design how it's supposed to be designed. You know, so it becomes this balance, right? Because, you know, specifically looking at your work that you do as a coach within, you know, the Center for Racial Equity, mm-hmm. the, the balance becomes, okay, how do we bring those along, um, those, those people who are white, um, who are part of the power structure, want to be an ally versus the approach that says all right we we don't need you because we're going we're going regardless of whether you're coming along with us or not you know Mm -hmm. so there's this thing about do we spend time with those who say i want to be an ally i want to help you um and i guess i'm asking you know how do we achieve that balance between redressing biases you know getting Mm -hmm. them to uh on the pathway to achieving growth versus saying we got to go. We got work to do. Is it a little bit of both? I think the key is building that um, that movement, right? It's that not every it's not everybody's job to bring allies along because at some point everybody started somewhere and there was an ally who was helping them understand whether that's our parents whether that was our brother and sister, whether that was a colleague or a professor, whoever it was, at some point we had to be, um, we had to have somebody who taught us something, right? And some of us became allies um, early. Some of us became co-conspirators early. Um, And the reality is, is that there has to be someone who's willing to talk with the allies. But Mm -hmm. the side of it is that, there also needs to be somebody who's talking to the co-conspirators and you can't ask the people who are up at the, you know, and I don't mean it to be like, um, um, I, I would rather look at it as like a, what do you call those? The gobstoppers, you know, like the layers. Yeah. Um, and the people in the center, it shouldn't be their job to work with the people furthest away, right? They need to work with the people next to them and those people need to work the next to them and kind of on the, all the way out, right? And the thing is, is that um, it's it's critical that we have 
people moving from, you know, wherever they began closer and closer towards co-conspirator. But nobody starts there. And also it's not sustainable for somebody to um, continue to work with the same uh, people that they began working with. Um, So when I I began, I was, I did not have um, the same level of knowledge that I have now. At one point in my life, I grew up in a very white, um, um, white neighborhood, Um, not in a white city. Like I grew up in Renton and it's not a white city. Um, I went to the Kent school district and yeah, not a white, super white school, but like the neighborhood that I grew up in and then like the elementary and middle school that I went to super, super white. And so I grew up wanting to be so white. Mm-hmm. Um, and at one point in high school, um, I, and, and even college, I think I remember using the word reverse racism, mm-hmm. right? Like I believed that because that's what I was taught. And then I learned that that's not real. <laughs> and I was like, mm, I think you're wrong. Let me talk to, here's my reason. They're like, have you read a book? And I was like, no. And so then I had to read and learn. And the people who could help me with it were the people who had just learned because they're not judging me for not knowing. And it's not a judgment of, I judge you negatively. It's a, I don't have the energy to make you believe this because my understanding is so far off. It just doesn't matter to me if you agree or not, because my energy could be better spent teaching somebody who doesn't understand intersectionality. Right. Or somebody who doesn't know what critical race theory is. Right. Like as we learn in more and more depth, the audience of our teachings change. And we have to be okay with that. And we also have to understand that somebody that was ignorant with with us years ago may not still be in the same place that they are now. And so if that person who was shitty to you 10 years ago is now facilitating something um, and you're like, yeah, well, you know what? It's like, but also there might be a space for them in the movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're not finished with that thought. There was something a little bit more there. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not, I'm trying to say the right thing, um, mm-hmm. like in the right, in the right way. Cause I don't mean to say that everybody has a position. Um, of, I guess my thing is everybody has a place in the movement. Yeah. But not everybody in the movement is a leader. That, that that's good right there that is good that's good um and everyone i know that um that works on on this type of work um racial equity um i asked them this question because it is hard work it's thankless and you face um uh constant opposition um the looks the jeers the emails that nobody knows about um mm-hmm. that um tell you what you're doing um you know doesn't matter um mm-hmm. Why, uh, why is this work um, so important to you? Um, a twofold reason. Um, so I'll tell you a story. I, I love telling stories. Um, and that is when I was young, um, my family is from India, and so I'm culturally Hindu, um, um, and spiritually Hindu. And my um, mother was telling us all about these different gods and goddesses. Um, and I'm going to tell you the story of a goddess named called Durga. Yeah. Um, and the goddess Durga um, is essentially, she came out, um, she was essentially created um, by all of the big male um, gods in um, Hinduism because there was a um, demon who his only vice was that only a woman could kill him. Um, and he was taking over everything. And um, I'm not doing this story justice, by the way. Um, so Durga was created and her, um, she had all of the different weapons from all of the gods. And she came to earth. And the reason she exists um, was for the liberation of the oppressed. And so that's the story of Durga. And when I was young, my mom told me, I said, mom, I love Durga. She's my favorite goddess. I love her. She's, she speaks to me. And that was before I really understood all of those things about liberation or oppression. I didn't really know about those things. Like, like I said, I, you know, um, I was, in, I was saying things like reverse racism. So like, I'm not, when I was a little child, I didn't have that depth of knowledge and nobody was teaching it to me. Right. I went to a white school in America. 
Yeah. I was definitely not learning about oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, my mom said to me, of course she speaks to you. Because when I was pregnant with you, I had a dream. And that was that Goddess Durga brought you to me. And that's why you are named Shraddha, mean devotion, as in your life would be devoted to Goddess Durga. Um, I'd forgotten about that. Um, I remember she told me that, I think, when I was in like, middle school, mm-hmm. um, maybe early, maybe late elementary. Um, and when I remembered it, the story, I was like, that makes a lot of sense to me because we all have a purpose and a reason for being on earth. Um, just spiritually, I don't believe that we are, um, that this is our only lifetime. Um, and I don't believe that we, you know, just exist because of science. Um, I think it's all very intentional. Um, and, uh, I find myself to be an old soul because I have knowledge that I don't know where it comes from. Um, and I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I mean that in a very humble way. <laughs> I don't know why I know some things that I do know, um, or why I connect with things. Um, and you know, the, the liberation movement is one of those things. And, um, I truly believe that my, my life's purpose is for the liberation of the oppressed, whatever that means, whatever that looks like, however I do that. Um, that's why I stay in this because that's my life's purpose. That's why I'm here. Um, and if the goddess Durga brought my, brought me to my mother, and my mom, um, my mom is incredible, incredible woman. Um, we, um, she moved to America and like left everything. She didn't want to come here. Mm-hmm. She wanted to stay home with her family. She came from a small little town in India. Really, um, she lived a really humble, poor person's life. Um, and um, we, you know, we dealt with domestic violence. We dealt with racism. We dealt with um isolation in america we didn't have any family here and um she ended up passing away um last year um from terminal cancer that was um really horribly was um ignored by doctors for years um symptoms were ignored and we caught it um at stage four and she dealt she fought stage four cancer for something like 10 years um and the last five years or so were extremely painful and hard and and you know we said like well part of the reason she was fighting was because when she originally got diagnosed with it um i was very young um i was in college and um she was like i don't want to fight this and my sister and i just begged her we were like we can't do this without you and so she lived her life for the for her community and for her family and her goal was always to liberate us from all the harm that she was experiencing and if my mom tells me that God's Durga brought me to her and that her life and my life were devoted to that and Goddess Durga exists for the liberation of the oppressed then that has to be my vision too and that has to be my purpose in life now, I don't know if I'll be doing it in the same way 20 years from now, but I know that that's my purpose for my life. That's just a, a powerful story. And um, as you're speaking in uh, many ways, you know, I haven't met your, um, you know, mother, obviously, um, but I see her spirit in you. You know, I, I just, I see it. Um and the way that you're carrying yourself, the way that you um, have been able to carry on a, a lot of um, the the values, you know, mm-hmm. that that she um, instilled in you, is um, is a way of honoring her legacy, you know. And um, so, uh, I just keep doing what you're doing. Um, I know that you are you are making her proud. You know, and uh, for that, you know, you, you, she, she's smiling, you know, she's just smiling just as big as you are right now and, um, and happy um, that 
what you're doing is meaningful and purposeful, impactful, you know, and you're making a difference. You're making a difference in the lives of many. And um, there's just uh, two questions before we get out of here. And um, yeah. one of those is, um, is I always ask if you could, if you could wave your magic wand in education or even in life in general, um, you would wave your magic wand and do what? I think if I could wave my magic wand, um, and I'm thinking small local community level here, um, because I'm thinking a magic wand would not solve racism because that's a human problem and magic can't fix humans. Humans have to do that. Um, but I do think magic can fix systems. And so if magic could, um, make my life better and make what I do more fun. I would magic the education system um, in a way that would allow us to have community schools where every student, you know, um, from kindergarten through 12th grade um, works with multiple teachers at the same time learning about whatever they want to learn and we find community members who can teach them those things and we just help them to explore the world and like the whole point of school would be to learn and have fun and enjoy and like it would all the whole the whole purpose would be about becoming more and more human and there would be no money in the world everything that you needed you would just have healthcare wouldn't be a problem because if you were sick it was it was something small because you were so taken care of you'd have no stress that we wouldn't have um chronic illness and disease and things that are due to stress because we wouldn't have that stress we would have food there wouldn't be starvation and things like that right like so systemic problems would be solved yeah. I still believe, even with the magic wand, that racism would still exist because humans. Absolutely. But absolutely. And to close out, I, I always like to say, you know, uh, we see you, teacher, and your voice has power.